The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben Rock. Hey, Ilya Friedman. How you doing today, sir? <laughs> I'm doing fine. Welcome to another episode of the Cinematography Podcast. It's episode like... 762 or something it's probably not just but, just this week but no we're, we're, we're closing in on episode 100 and this is seven years seven years like three days ago yeah the, we've just passed our seven year anniversary we've been of doing the show. This for seven fucking years and honestly the last 50 episodes were within the last year and a half i think right well you know what frankly the last 50 episodes are probably our best 50 episodes Definitely, for sure. <laughs> sorry, sorry, everyone who... In your had, face, Chris Coman and Fraser Bradshaw. Oh. <laughs> Jason Wingrove. You know what? There's a certain charm, I think, to our early episodes. And if you're a, a fan of the show, go back and, and, and try one. You don't have to listen to the whole thing, but you can just get get an idea of what sort of a greener uh, Ilya and Ben sounded yeah, like. Yeah, we were pretty green. Pretty pretty damn green. But that being said, I, I think that all of those interviews, like the people we interviewed, were all pretty awesome. And maybe we should have some of them back. I think that's a great idea. Chris Coleman, Fraser Bradshaw. Anyway, <laughs> Jason Wingrove. So Ben, what's a uh, close focus today? Well, uh, it was actually something that you brought up about a uh, deal that Disney just struck for the musical Hamilton. That's right. They bought a film version of the play, which I don't know about you. I never saw it. I did not see Hamilton. It ran out here at the Pantages, but I I want to say it was around the time that either my son was born or when my wife was super pregnant, and there was just not enough. You didn't have time. an extra like twenty grand for tickets. You exactly, just lying around I, under the yeah, mattress. Yeah. My friend Aaron Goldstein, who was also one of the producers on my movie, flew to New York to see it. I believe right before Lin Manuel Miranda uh, stopped playing the part that he was playing. Oh wow. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, and and didn't regret it for a second. I've I, like everybody else. I've heard the soundtrack, and I'm I'm very impressed. Not to get political, but I wonder how it will feel to watch it in our current political climate, which is radically different than. The the climate under which it was originally written and produced. Well, I've blissfully stayed unaware of everything with the play, so uh, I, I can't wait to see it. I think no. it'll be great to see it as a movie. And and here's the thing: here's what makes this this deal, this acquisition for the play, uh, the movie version of the play. It had the original cast, and it might be a record for all time for acquisition. Disney paid seventy five million dollars for this play. That's a movie. As as an avid uh, theater person, I'm just really glad to see theater people uh, sticking it to the man and getting paid. <laughs> um, and it it only took uh, you know Hamilton to do it. I know. Well, and you know, and obviously Lin Manuel Miranda is you know a, a singular talent. Like he's 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 pretty amazing. I, I got to see a documentary about what he was doing before Hamilton at Sundance called uh, Freestyle Love Supreme. And if you like yourself some comedy, some musical, and some rapping, which I, I know you do you may want to google and watch some of those cool videos they've done in the past on youtube oh i'll check it out yeah but uh we were talking about it kind of being a, an interesting portal into uh just you know musicals in general but also i i think that because it sounds like and i could be wrong about this but it sounds like what they did was they did a really good job filming the play and and you know which which to me means they brought in a ton of cameras and maybe tweaked the light the lighting to a degree so that it was better for filmmaking and they're going to release this really well produced recording basically of the play in theaters as compared to what you see with something like Les Mis or Chicago where you know like they not, turn it into a movie yeah, yeah. You, you're the upcoming West Side Story that Steven Spielberg's doing those are all original movies but it also they're, is they're, they're narrative they're, it's not taking place on a stage it's not with the necessarily yeah. the original cast it's yeah. exactly and this is something that I've had many long conversations about in fact I uh, filmed a, a promo for John Lithgow's one man show uh, stories by heart years ago and having to talk to the ad agency that he was working with and uh, the man himself about like we don't want to film theater because when you're watching a recording of theater it doesn't work as it doesn't feel like you're in the room with the play not not always no but 
on the flip side of that, there's been, um, I think it's uh, like the Royal Shakespeare Theater or, so, or some theater from England has been broadcasting basically in movie theaters around the world. Live performances. Correct. Yeah. And uh, my wife actually went to see years ago, Danny Boyle had directed a production of Frankenstein starring mm. Johnny Lee Mir- Miller and Benedict Cumberbatch. Wow. And apparently they would true west it where they would like switch, one would play the one would play Frankenstein, one would play the, play the creature, and then the next night they would swap it. But she, she went and saw it. And, uh, you know, the, the other side of this, too, is the recent phenomenon of these musicals like Grease that they're broadcasting on network television, which aren't, I don't believe, for an audience in any of those cases, but they're basically a staging, a theater staging of the play. They're not like shooting on location. They're shooting it in one stage. Yeah, yeah. In some ways, this is kind of like the promise of what people said, digital projection and what, you know, the digital cinema would mean is that it would be more like television and that you could see some of the same sort of stuff, whether it be uh, spontaneous or whether it be political in case a whole bunch of people wanted to get together and watch. The State of the Union. Yeah, the State of the Union or the Academy Awards or the Super Bowl. They they said that this would be coming and that it sort of was uh, heralded as like, you know, you're not going to miss celluloid that much because we can just beam it now to the theater and you can have this incredible experience. I don't know how many of these things have caught on or how many that have done, but uh, like you're talking about the, um, the, like the Shakespeare in the theater, uh, maybe, maybe there's more coming to us. More uh, of that kind of thing. I mean, I, f- I feel like something that was as much of a runaway success as Hamilton. It's going to be massive. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's going to be but, huge. But, but 50 years ago, they just would have filmed it on 35 millimeter cameras and released it in movie theaters. That, that's right. And now it's going to be some incredible theatrical experience that uh, everyone who did not have an, a spare 10,000 stuffed under the mattress can now go see it for probably uh, 875. I hate to keep making this my whipping boy, but I bet the producers of Cats are like, oh, I could have just, you know, brought in the cast and done a really good job filming this. And, uh, you know, we could have simulcast at the theaters. And even if we spent $20 million on that, we still would have saved $110 million <laughs> oh, yeah. and and made money and maybe given Cats fans what they wanted instead of, uh, I still haven't seen Cats, so... <laughs> Before you completely trash it, maybe you should watch it. You never no. know. You might like it. Well, they didn't really do an Oscar push for Cats. They didn't? And, and so Wait, I, it's for I, next year's Oscars, though. Did it, did no, it, it would have been for... It, it was, oh, out, wow. it was yeah. out in 2019, and oh, okay. uh, I, I did. so I didn't get a screener. And uh, is that going to be one of the cards I'm going to play in my marriage? Like, we have to go see this in the theater. <laughs> I mean, like, there are a few, there's, you know, like... There's only so many cards like that you can play. Like, Must go see in the theater. We went and saw Parasite. We went and saw Midsummer. You know, like, we, we've gone to see plenty of movies in the theater. But it's usually stuff that we can both agree on. And I feel like my ironic need to watch Cats can wait for wherever it ends up streaming. Uh, okay, you're, you're right. We, we, um, we don't need to, to dwell on this. But does it feel to you like musicals are having a bit of a resurgence at this point in time? I mean, I feel like in Broadway, and even though I'm a theater person, I'm not a musical theater person in the same way that someone who is way into musical theater would be. Mm. Uh, but I feel like musical theater's never gone out of fashion on Broadway, and it always Oklahoma, <laughs> but it but it, it always kind of morphs and changes with the times. And so Lin Manuel Miranda seized what probably was the inevitable, which is someone was going to make a rap musical because people like us who grew up with rap are now old enough to buy Broadway tickets. And so it actually has kind of a crossover appeal that probably starts with people in their fifties and goes and goes, you know, down to people in their, you know, I mean, my, my nephew is, you know, when he was 14 was obsessed with Hamilton. So, you know, and Hamilton seems like it spans all quadrants, as they say, though, it seems like everyone is my, my dad who will still argue with you that rap is not music wants to see Hamilton. And I'm like, you're aware that it's nothing but rap, right? It's like an opera if opera were rapping. Not to confuse it with uh, Trapped in the Closet, the R. Kelly hip-hopera. Hip-hopera, that's right. Yeah, yeah. But my father was like all excited to see Hamilton. And I'm like, but it has that not music stuff in it that you hate, you know, because he's just (laughs) waiting. Jazz is going to make a big comeback. This is a long diversion. I'm not going to go down it. But I do think that musicals maybe as a mainstream vehicle, like I, I feel like in the early days of movies, Busby Berkeley kind of stuff all the way through like Oklahoma and stuff like that. And then like in the sixties, I feel like musicals went out of style. And then every once in a while you'd have like Francis Ford Coppola would make something like one from the heart. And every once in a greater while, one of those would end up being very, very popular. I remember as a kid, 
going to see Little Shop of Horrors in the movie theater. Loved it. Dragged uh, like I went and sat with my friend. Then I dragged my whole family to see it. Then I bought the soundtrack on it's LP. Frank Oz. It's incredible. I think it's Frank Oz's masterpiece. I think it is still as watchable today as it was uh, when it came out in like whatever 1985. And they're remaking it. And I'm like, oh man, I don't want I don't want to CGI Audrey too. Uh, no, that's too that's too bad. I'm sorry. I'm actually sorry to hear that they're gonna CG that because that that's kind of what's wonderful about it. Audrey, like, the Audrey too is like yeah. just in- incredible. But I th- I mean I sort of feel like musicals are like any other specialty genre. I, I'm always defending horror Westerns. movies. I'm, I'm always defending horror movies because people are like, most horror movies suck. And I'm like, most movies suck. I forget who it was. They were. Talk- I think it's a science fiction writer who said 98% of everything sucks. I'm going to say that not only like 90% of stuff sucks, but it's true that like 97% of horror sucks. Uh, go fuck yourself. <laughs> There's like an extra seven percent no, there. That is. I, 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 I disagree. You you don't watch enough horror, and, and that, that's that's and, true. And you're factually wrong. Yeah. But um, I think horror sucks uh, completely consistently with, with the, the same ratio, the of same ratio else. of of everything mm. else. And I think that musicals suffer that too. But when a musical sucks. Oh my God! Did so much effort go into it, and uh, I mean, like in the theater world, like actually even in the small theater that I'm involved with in LA, I was one of the artistic directors there for two seasons. And the reason we didn't do more musicals is because it just like ballooned the budget. So imagine you're you're making it's a lot harder to produce. It's and ha- produced well. Yeah, it's harder because you have to be able to hear the lyrics, and you have to hire all the musicians, and and you have to cast people who actually can sing and or dance and, and act. Or yeah, act, Every, yeah, everyone's got to be a triple yeah. threat and so musicals I, I feel like they kind of come and go and I think that it's one of those things where it's not a dependable genre you can't say okay we're gonna such and such was a big hit on Broadway we're gonna make it into a, a movie and the audience is gonna turn out for that I, I think one of the more interesting cases of, of this was the producers which was a movie that was then turned into a musical and then the musical was turned into a movie and I think it did relatively well but I think that there are probably dozens of Broadway caliber musicals all the time and you know single digits of those end up making it to the big screen and even when they do it's stuff like Les Mis which the the journey of Les Mis to the screen was decades it's really hard to do it and I feel like what's interesting about this Hamilton thing is whoever's idea it was at Disney or whatever they figured to acquire it yeah yeah, to acquire it and release what you're describing to me is the smartest sharpest way to do it because hopefully if they filmed it right and I and I think that this actually relates to the cinematography of it because the cameras are light sensitive enough that you're not going to have to relight your whole play and a musical is also mic'd, so you have a clean audio feed coming in from every actor and every musician. So you could kind of, in a movie theater, recreate the the experience of seeing it in a the theater in the way that the John Lithgow commercial that I worked on was afraid you wouldn't be able to replicate. You you sort of can replicate it. Like I feel like it's it's one less barrier for the audience member who watches it to not feel like they're in an actual theater watching it. Well, I can't wait to see it, and I think that this might be a harbinger of more musicals being produced for the big screen like this. Well, and like this, because, again, you said it was 70, 75 million or something? 75 million reported, yeah. yeah. If they were going to produce a movie of Hamilton, it would be twice that. At least. And if their experiment is right, and I bet this is kind of being calculated into this, if their experiment is right, that schmoes like you and me who didn't get to see Hamilton on Broadway and didn't didn't go, you know, throw down several hundred dollars to see it even when it showed up in our in our fine city. I have no problem paying 15, 17 bucks to see it in, the, in a theater, in a nice theater and kind of get that experience. And they didn't have to rebuild the whole play in a different format. A wonderful release it in IMAX or 3D or some other sort of thing <laughs> and then say see it again the way that you've never seen it before or they filmed it in show scan <laughs> That's the, that's no, they, that's the they, rub. I'm sure they didn't. <laughs> Show scan. Uh, hey, Ben, we got to talk about who's on the show today. Oh, yeah. Well, you did the interview, so I think you should cue it right Okay, up. then I'll, I'll talk about it. So I interviewed the directors behind the new HBO documentary series, McMillions. You've probably seen some of the uh, previews for it if you're watching anything on HBO. And uh, I am. And, and I have. So uh, you know it is all about the scandal of the fixing of the McDonald's Monopoly game that came out in the late 80s. Sweet. So, and have you, how much of it have you seen? Uh, I got to see the first three episodes and it's fantastic. There's a lot of twists and turns. 
I don't want to get into it too much, but uh, I will say that the series directors, James Lee Hernandez and Brian Lazarte, are both fantastic, and we talked about it quite a bit, and the characters are wonderful, and by the time this goes live, it will already be live on HBO, so by the time you're listening to my voice, you should go and uh, fire up your HBO Now, your HBO Go, or soon your HBO Max, and watch McMillions. Or, or I you think you'll just, enjoy it very go, much. Go, go to your TiVo and punch in on the search field McMillions and, and record it on, onto your DVR. You could do that too. Yes. For, for all of you, all of you who are still doing, who are, who are still doing the, uh, the, the cable system, which, yeah. which is still 47% of America. So, oh boy. Yeah. Anyway, well, here we go. Your interview with the makers of McMillions. The cinematography podcast interview. HBO is launching a new television series called McMillions. The creators of the show are here with me today, James Lee Hernandez and Brian Lazarte. Welcome to the Cinematography Podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So, so gentlemen, this is an incredible story. I actually remember hearing a radio report about this many, many years ago. I'm not actually sure where it was now. It was so long ago. But uh, you guys have truly dove into the subject matter to create, I would say, probably the definitive work on this uh, scandal. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about it? And the, I, I know we have to be sensitive about uh, giving stuff away because the podcast and the show are both going to be doing that. So give us the, the big overview of what is McMillions. From 1987 to 2001, McDonald's ran the Monopoly game where you could go in and buy French fries, Big Mac, and, and you get these game pieces to peel off and, and have a chance to possibly win houses, cars, boats, sea dues, 25000 50000 uh, up to the grand prize of a million dollars. Well, it turns out from 1989, which is as far back as we could find, until 2001, almost every person who came forward to claim any of the high-value prizes turned out to be part of a criminal ring to defraud the game. And this entire syndicate was taken down by the FBI in an incredible undercover operation. Dealing with the huge amount of time that has passed since this scandal, and I would say, you know, probably very little media coverage, how was it to find and track down the people who are involved as well as all the ancillary uh, resources to it? I, I imagine it was a massive undertaking. Yeah, it was an interesting combination of people working together. And originally, it started with me putting a freedom of information request in with the U.S. government in, I think, 2014. And then being able to get some of the files from the case, which then in turn allowed us to see what FBI agents were involved and the U.S. attorney that prosecuted the case, reaching out to them, reaching out to FBI headquarters. But then when you get to the criminal side of it, when you get to people that worked at the marketing company, people who worked at the printing company, and even McDonald's, that's that's where the deep dive happened, and that was a combination of Brian, myself, Brian and myself, and then also our producer we work with, Peter King, is phenomenal at finding people. The FBI probably should hire him, um, as well as Carly Palmer, one of our supervising producers. It was all of us diving in to find everyone, but the very beginning, it was just Brian and I and, and Peter <laughs> doing our version of what the government, the federal government does. Yeah. Uh, were you guys working independently at the time or was HBO involved from the very beginning? No, in 2017, James actually came and met with me, uh, asked me if I would be interested in being a part of this project and if this would be something worth pursuing as a documentary feature, at, at least at the time. And uh, the more we dug into it, it was quickly evident that this could be far more than a feature. But from 2017 until about 2018, summer of 2018, we were working independently, just finishing other projects that we were working on, uh, whether as editors or producers uh, or directing other projects. But we got to a point where we felt like we were ready to take it to uh, a network. And we teamed up with Unrealistic Ideas, which is Mark Wahlberg, Stephen Levinson, and Archie Gibbs's company, and uh, brought it to HBO. And really, it's been an incredible collaboration and partnership with everybody. Yeah, when we first were working on this together, it was fully us doing it on our own dime in, <laughs> in between working other projects. The first time going to Jacksonville, it was, <laughs> I, I remember I was working doing branded content videos for a few days in a row and then literally took a red eye that night 
and then the next day was filming in Jacksonville with Mark Devereaux and, and Doug Matthews from the show. You've got a lot of reenactments in this project, and I think they work really well. They, they help move the story along. They give everyone sort of uh, insights and uh, a visual reference into what was happening at the time. Uh, tell me a little about the process of doing these reenactments and uh, putting it all together. Well, it, for us, it started with hearing the stories from the FBI agents and understanding just how uh, intense an investigation really can be, especially uh, a lot of times an FBI investigation will span years. They had a matter of months to figure all this stuff out. And so we wanted people to be able to live the, what these stories the FBI were telling us the same way we were living them as they were telling us. It's, it's instead of just having a, a talking head saying something, we wanted that, that thrill of what a real investigation is like for the viewer. Yeah, the, the experience of being in the room with McDonald and the FBI at that very first meeting, it felt like there's really no other way to tackle it. I mean, we talked about different ways in which we could approach the storytelling and reenactments seemed to make the most sense. We definitely didn't want to, you know, have something that felt too generic. Our cinematographer, Jeff Dolan, who we've both worked with independently, actually, for well over a decade, and then uh, on this project uh, collaborated all together. He really helped us in defining our look and, and the style with those recreations to make sure that we, A, didn't take away from the real characters in the show. We had actually played with the idea of even going further and making the recreations feel more like a movie. And we found that our characters, our real life characters in the story, were just so strong that when we did experiment and play with more in, in the recreations, it actually took away from the real people. So we kind of found, hopefully found that, that sweet spot where you're, you're not distracted by it. It's just, it's part of the storytelling. And as James said, you know, we found ourselves feeling like it was, it played out like a movie, but we have real people telling uh, their story as if it's a movie. It's such a natural segue. I, I, I'd feel remiss if we didn't actually talk that this will be becoming a movie at some point. Uh, did I hear correctly that Matt Damon and Ben Affleck's production company has gotten involved and this is going to be a, a feature film? So that was a really interesting thing about this entire deal was Brian and I had been working on this since we teamed up at the end of summer 2017. I first found out about the story in, in 2012 and looked into it throughout that entire time. Um, and in the midst of us working with the FBI, already having interviewed the key agents from the case and, and talking to some of the quote unquote winners from the case, summer 20, beginning of summer 2018, uh, we got a call from some of our agents and they said, hey, some reporter just called us and said that he's gonna do uh, an article on the McDonald's thing and like, are, is he with you guys? Whatever. And I'm like, no, don't worry about it. How many articles come out a day? It's not a big deal. Just either say you're already working with somebody else or just don't respond at all. And so they didn't. And then the article came out and again, people sent it to us and we're like, oh yeah, you know, it, the article is based on case files that, that most, basically anybody can get if you put in the time to get it. Not a big deal. And then we didn't realize that this was a calculated effort to sell uh, the story as, uh, as a movie. So that article came out on Saturday, and then on Thursday, there was the announcement that Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, along with Fox, had bought the rights to the article to make into a feature. And I personally have been working on this thing since 2012. Brian and I have been working on it together since 2017, and uh, I had a full-blown meltdown. Um, but at that point, we rallied, um, and that's when we really locked in with um, Mark Wahlberg, Stephen Levinson, and Archie Gibbs at Unrealistic Ideas to uh, do this as a, a doc. Yeah. Wow. That that no. Well, that's interesting. I didn't uh, catch that at all, or uh, nor had I seen that reported anywhere that it was uh, it was another thing that had uh, gone out there as a specific effort to try to be sold as a, as a movie. So, uh, well, uh, you know, credit to you guys. This feels incredibly cinematic, and it is an incredible six hour 
story with tons and tons of information broken up into a series, uh, you guys are going to be able to show the real story in a way that no fictionalization can possibly. And you have the real you have the real people involved, including the lead investigators from the from the FBI. Talk a little bit about working with the FBI for this and and your interviews with the the investigator in particular, because uh, I cannot do justice what sort of personality he is, but he's a big <laughs> personality and is uh, fun every second to watch. Yeah, we definitely talk about this quite a bit. In, in most cases, when you think FBI, you've got this sort of stoic, very by the book, hard to read character in mind. And there's been some great movies that, that really highlight this caricature of the FBI. So we, we did have a certain expectation and never anticipated that we would get such wonderful characters, not only out of the the criminal, quote unquote, criminal side of the story, but the FBI. And specifically who who you're referring to is uh, who he was the rookie agent at the time named Doug Matthews, still an active agent, very prolific. And his energy is infectious. Unlike any person, you, you, you really could not script this character if you were writing the, you know, the, the feature screenplay. So we were definitely blessed with a, an incredible FBI agent to, to help tell his side of the story. And, and really, he was the, the main guy who helped make this all possible in a lot of ways because his superior, who was Special Agent Rick Dent at the time, really wrote this potential tip off as as a hoax. He he thought that that this wasn't really worth pursuing. It was just left on his. It was a little post-it note left on his desk. And Doug Matthews, who was just this eager, hungry rookie agent, was just like, "What is that?" and um and went after it. Uh, Doug's incredible. D- Doug is, uh, uh, if the FBI had two more Dougs, there would be no more crime. I, I swear <laughs> that. <laughs> right, we're definitely going to tell him that you said that. Please put that in the podcast so we can play it for him. That will make his day. Uh, Doug's amazing. I, I, I swear, he, he is gold every time he is on. And I swear he's got so much enthusiasm for the job. Well, at least certainly the, the, the jobs that he's into. He has t- incredible enthusiasm. And for me, it's like, it's magical. Magic. And uh, he's kind of like what I wish and imagine all FBI agents were like, because he's super enthusiastic about like, you know, how is he going to take down these criminals? And and it really is a criminal enterprise and not getting into it too far. But there's uh, organized crime. There's all kinds of corruption and actually the corruption of people who in some ways, I'm not going to say they're completely innocent, but they're bystanders or they got pulled into this. And I, you know, at least myself feel, feel rather, rather sorry for them for and ending up in, in a situation. They thought, oh, well, I'm going to try and help someone and maybe I'll help myself a little in the process. But then once they realize what they've done, I think it's a it's a different thing. Can you talk a little bit about some of the 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 interviews? subjects that you've uh, that you had for this and how you feel the uh, investigation and the documentary uh, portrays them well for us it, it was very important to tell all sides of the story and all sides of the story are you're gonna have the FBI side that for them for what the FBI normally does is somewhat fun and it's funny and and then of course you have Doug who's comedy uh, on top of comedy but these were real people's lives who were affected and we never wanted anyone to feel like we were making fun of the people in it. It funny things happen within it, just like in life, funny things happen. And in an instant, it can go from funny to to tragic. And we wanted to be able to toe that line because with the interesting people and characters that are within this, they're also just real people. You've, you've a person like, Robin Colombo, you have a person like Gloria Brown who you meet in the later episodes and, and even more beyond the first three episodes of people who just got caught up into something that they wanted that miracle in their life. They're willing to turn a blind eye to thinking it might not be right. And unfortunately, it came back and, and bit them in, in a way that they could never have imagined. But they still are regular people. They weren't career criminals. Yeah. I mean, everybody, if you grew up in the 90s, played the game, wanted to win. And if a friend or family member came up to you and, and offered you a chance to claim a prize and all you had to do was say you were the one who peeled the game piece, most people, especially at that time, probably would have done it. We were far more skeptical today in society compared to what we were back then. And so we always looked at this you know, criminal component 
rather than thinking of it as a, a syndicate, as it's you know often referred to, or even sometimes we refer to it as, you know, th- th- these weren't career criminals. I mean, some of them had uh, criminal backgrounds, but for others, this was really their opportunity, or as they put it, an opportunity to to get ahead in life. And no one, uh, even the the ones who were career criminals, ever could have imagined that this would have come down the way it did, and they would have felony convictions to their name. So it, you know, and we, this is a thing that James and I have always talked about in regards to the, the victimless crime component of this story, which many people often feel that that's the case. People are stealing from a billion dollar corporation. It, they're not killing anyone. It's not hurting anyone. Uh, but when you hopefully watch the whole series, you'll walk away realizing that these small actions that that each of these individuals took to claim a prize had pretty severe consequences that still affect them to this day. I actually don't look at look at it that they were stealing from the corporation. They were stealing from me. They were stealing from everybody who played that game. Yeah, who, uh, who thought us that too. They, that's yeah. uh, that was a big thing. That's that's why we dove in. I mean, Brian and I grew up at the time where, you know, uh, McDonald's was one of the biggest companies on the planet. I mean, they're still very big, but at that point, McDonald's was a part of America. Any kid growing up during that time period, you went to McDonald's as a treat. Didn't matter what class rank you were, wealthy people, poor, didn't matter. Um, and so the game, Monopoly, was huge. If you, we try, at the very beginning, we show a lot of the excitement of, uh, at the very beginning of episode one, we show the excitement of what this game was and how big it was during that time um, and how big it was for us during that time. So with all of that in mind, it, it's, it's pretty fascinating to think like this was going on the entire time everyone in America was trying to win this game. Oh yeah, I remember it very well. I was in high school, I think, when this was uh, going on. And it, it wasn't just McDonald's though too. You could also get a game piece in a magazine. Or I, I remember the, going over to friends' houses and seeing it like, the, you know, the game board sort of like spread out on the kitchen table and all the little pieces, you know, plugged in there trying to complete, you know, the, the grand prize winning things. And most people seem to win French fries, but there was there was a lot of uh, other stuff going on. Where, where do you see the repercussions from this scandal? Uh, I mean, do you see, uh, besides the fact that they don't exactly do a lot of contests like this anymore. Do you see any uh, lasting effects from what happened? I don't know. I mean, it's it's hard to say because you still have game shows out there that are very successful. You know, people want to win. They want to play and they want to win. It's uh, how can I get some free money? There, you know, maybe we're in a little bit of a lull, but uh, it's certainly the possibility of, of this coming back or something like this resurfacing, we think is, is quite likely. Perhaps uh, efforts that are made from, from a corporate side or from, uh, from those who, who run games or, or opportunities like this uh, have changed and their rules have changed and, and how they go about their security measures uh, will change. But Vegas is still Vegas. Like people want to go, uh, they want the chance for you know free money and that like we're we're wired that way so as long as there's a need for it someone's going to create uh, the opportunity for that. I did a little bit of research uh, before sitting down, and I actually was looking at some of the uh, electronic and internet-based now uh, games and gambling and promotions and stuff that goes on. Uh, I have to imagine uh, there's much less oversight in that sort of arena too, and so the chances of corruption or fraud is is that much greater. When I, I haven't, I wasn't allowed to see all of the uh, the, the series before I was sitting down here. Mm-hmm. But do you guys go into anything outside of the story or the the repercussions across you know this sort of contests and gaming? throughout the US? We, uh, we don't really dive too deep into what it means across all games, but we do dive into the repercussions from what happens after everything comes out and what happens to the company that ran the game for McDonald's and just what happens going forward with McDonald's and these types of games. It's the oversight of something like this is very interesting because there are rules that govern these things. Like for example, to play the Monopoly game, you could just walk into a McDonald's and ask for a game piece for free. Because if you didn't do that and you had to buy product, it technically is gambling. And then it becomes a sweepstakes, which is a completely different thing. But there are a lot of things out there that are far more sophisticated at this point than 
what this game was in the 90s. It was, it was somewhat basic in the way it was run before. And now, you know, we, someone has asked us before about, do we think the level of corruption of what was happening with this game can happen today? And in a lot of senses, things are far more sophisticated now. And that's why that the, even like the FBI has changed completely because there's so much that happens online that they have to keep up with. So, gentlemen, uh, tell me a little bit about your background. And uh, I know you guys were working as editors and editors and uh, directors before, but what prepared you for this sort of uh, massive investigative uh, journey? Where, where does that come from? You said you were working in branded content, James. Uh, I, I got to imagine that that's not exactly the, the proving ground for, for this sort of investigation. Yeah, it's, uh, it's something that's been within me my entire life. Like, I'm very inquisitive and basically everything I've most of the things I've done in my life, I was self-taught or got into it myself and then was a mentor. And it started with, with music, uh, actually very similar to Brian. I, I was a musician, taught myself how to play guitar, bass, and drums, and was in bands for years. And uh, I just, the, it's always been something within me that I, I, get, I got from my parents, my family, I don't know, but doing branded content. And then I actually used to work for Brian's wife at Hallmark making Hallmark movies for uh, their SVOD service back in, back in the day. But yeah, I, I do a ton of research on anything that I ever do. And this is just one of those things that it piqued my interest and I lived through that time. And, and you know, my first job when I was 16 was at McDonald's and I just, I needed to know what was behind all of this stuff. Brian, are you an autodidact as well? <laughs> you know, yeah, I, I started in, in music through my 20s and uh, music got me into film and I was making my own projects and as a result also editing all my own projects. And somehow someone saw something I edited and asked me if I could edit something they were working on. And I, of course, said yes, and especially that you're going to pay me to do it. And then for the greater part of the last 15 years, most of my career has been spent in an editorial. And it's been extremely beneficial to me personally from a storytelling standpoint, getting to work with so many different directors, so many different producers and different networks. And just that uh, advantage from storytelling, you know, in the storytelling realm, definitely felt like it was, you know, all in, in line with the preparation to do what James and I did here and you know the the projects that I've you know that I cut were very much in in the documentary space. Kitchen, Kitchen Nightmares is a, is a great show. I watched good, a lot of it. So it was a good show. But you know, Fed Up was a documentary. Oh yeah, Fed Up. I, re- I, I see that on my my streaming service. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The Katy Perry movie w- was was one of the more challenging docs. I, I wanted to tell you guys both uh, since I have you here, the editing on this is so strong. I know that you guys are directors, but you guys, all, I assume, are also the editors of this project since you both work professionally as editors. The editing on this, it's a massive undertaking, and you tell a cohesive and entertaining story from beginning to end of every episode with the appropriate amount of cliffhangerness. So if, if, <laughs> if, that's, if that's a real term. That's so. definitely a word I'm going to now use. Thank you. Yeah, Brian and I have a background in, in editorial. We've both done it for uh, over a decade, but we had a, a fantastic team to work with. I and mean, Jody uh, McVeigh Schultz, Lane Farnham, Scott Evans, Scott Hansen, Dan Reed, and, and the two of us, we all dove into it. Everyone had a good read on what we wanted. We, we ironed out, and it took us a little while to iron out the first episode with Jody and once we locked into the tone, then it was easy to have that template to go off of. Well, not necessarily easy, but people knew the I, template. I don't think anything about this was easy. This, <laughs> looks, this, this looks like an incredibly difficult project just because of all the different moving elements you've got, including all the reenactments, plus all the interviews and a little bit of archival footage and the old commercials and everything else. I know you were working on this for years, even uh, before you guys got together and then before it, you know, Mark Wahlberg and HBO came, came on board. Uh, it's, it's a very, very long-term process, but once you guys are really cooking here and you're shooting your reenactments, what's about your production schedule up to that? About how many months or 
years did, did yeah. that take? That, that was a that was a year. So the moment that we teamed up with HBO to make this happen, they asked us how, you know, at what point can this be complete? And uh, whether it's arbitrary or not, we felt that... Uh, <laughs> or it goes, maybe. Yeah, I mean, no, we felt that a year was uh, was the target time uh, for us to make it happen. And But you also have to remember at the time, we... We thought we knew the whole story back then. And as we were going, it just continued to build and build and build. And so we definitely found ourselves in this, you know, plentiful of riches, you know, situation. And, you know, yes, I mean, we, we, we spent a great deal of time, you know, in front of an edit bay ourselves. But we also knew that as, as editors, if you bring on a, a really great editor as well and, and you trust them to, to bring something to the table, you're going to be surprised each time. And, and, and to really single out Jody, especially when we had him come in for our first episode, it was critical to finding that tone because we, we, you know, we knew that this was going to have a great deal of humor but also ride that line of, of being very serious at the same time. And, and as many different documentaries and documentary series that we have been familiar with, we really couldn't find one that sort of straddled that tone. And uh, the tone is usually depressing and then more depressing after that. <laughs> uh, but, you know, but Jody's background, he had he had worked on, on Drunk History and uh, on Big Mouth and Last Chance You. And he and I uh, were editors probably 12 years ago together. And, I, and for some reason, I just remember him having this just really great um, sensibility for different styles and different tones. And, and you, you don't find that too often in great editors. I mean, great editors should be able to do anything, but there was something really um, specific about what I remember when I was working with him. And so when we brought him in for that first episode and, and very quickly, he, he started to put together some ideas and it was for the most part, yes, yes, yes. And, and the little things that we started to tweak really just helped us refine not only elements that we were planning to go and shoot, but how we were going to approach, you know, editorial for the remaining series. And then just since this is a cinematography podcast, we did shoot on Cook Anamorphics for all the interview and Verite, and then we shot Hawk, uh, no, Cook Spherical, and then we shot Hawk Anamorphics for all the recreations. So that's why it has a 2-1 crop. Yeah, B Cine was I think. B Cine, yeah. Who we got our? Um, uh, I love Bianca. B Cine. Oh yeah, yeah, they're, yeah, they're, yeah. They're, amazing. They're they're good friends. The good yeah. friends of ours. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. They were yeah. they were they're so fantastic. It was it was one of the most fun things of the entire thing was getting to go to Hawk and test out all their lenses with Bianca and with Jeff Tolan. It was yeah. awesome. Yeah, I mean we should also give a nod to Kenny. Yeah, uh, Kenny Stoff. Yeah, who also worked with us. And Rod Hassler. Yeah, Rod Hassler. Uh, both are incredible cinematographers. And, um, you know, because of the size and scope of this project, we, we really did. I mean, Jeff was certainly the, the captain of the ship and, and took us all the way to the finish line. But the, the support that we got from, from Kenny and Rod especially. Uh, we had a couple other guys, too, um, who came on board. Two, uh, we had two Zachs. Two Zachs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, for, for a couple day player, but it's hard. It's hard always to pinpoint people's schedules and, and whatnot. But we were really uh, grateful that not only could we work with great friends, but incredibly talented friends as well. Well, gentlemen, where can people find you? Do you guys do any social media stuff? Do you have an official website yet for the uh, for the series? Uh, how can people uh, follow your progress from this point forward? For the show, you can go to hbo.com slash McMillions. For me personally, you can find most of the stuff I do on Instagram. My Instagram handle is I-A-M-T-H-E-J-L-H. So I am the J-L-H. Cool. And we'll add that to the show notes for this episode. Sweet. And, and Brian, wh what about you? Well, I'm I'm not the best at social media. <laughs> it, it's, it's not a requirement. A lot uh, of know, people I, think that it's a requirement uh, these days, but I, it's it's definitely I, not. I just joined. Uh, it's BD Lazarte. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I just joined Instagram, so I, I'm still. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm like an old man fumbling, trying to figure out. Don't, I, don't feel bad. We just I, joined Instagram okay. too. We we have almost 400. Well, no, I think we we've just passed 400 followers, so we're feeling pretty good. On our flight to or to Salt Lake City to go to Sundance, I had to give Brian a, a quick tutorial on how to use Instagram. Yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, in some ways I'm, I'm a bit of a old school troglodyte and yeah. technology is something that, uh, you know, if I need to learn how to use it, I, I can do it and then I can become an expert at it. But then it just 
it, it, it advances so fast that by the time I, I, I let other people figure out the kinks and then jump on board. But we, you know, so we actually started our, our own company as a result of this mm-hmm. uh, okay. called Fun Meter. Oh, nice. Oh, um, yes, of course. It's, it's, on the, it's on the head of the show, and it's, right. a, it's a cool logo. So, <laughs> Fantastic. Gentlemen, thank you so much for, for being on the show, and uh, I, I can't wait to have you guys back with your next project. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> All right. That was the team from McMillions. Thank you so much for being on the show. And check out McMillions when it, when it drops on HBO. I've been Which see- is right now. You can go right now to HBO and watch McMillions. So have gone and have already watched McMillions right now. That's right. I've been seeing the promos regularly on uh, on um, in front of other a- on Avenue Five and uh, The Outsider and The Outsider, which both of which I've been watching. Avenue Five is so so damn good. Really? After the first episode, I went, I don't know. Oh man! Uh, the beginning of the first episode, I'm like, I'm having this is a, I'm having a little. It's a little bit of work for me to get into it. By the end of the first episode, I was in, and then it's just gotten it. It's like one of those things where the ra- the rapidity of, of jokes being thrown at you and how much work it was to set that up because it's like all on this cruise ship in outer space. Sure, sure. And uh, like, you know, and then the running jokes that they have, like there's some people who die and they get ejected, but the gravity of the ship is such that their bodies just keep <laughs> orbiting. In orbit. Yeah, so, there and, they go, going around so again. Like, yeah. like there was like a, a scene in like their little club and they have a stand-up comedian and he's like doing his jokes and the window behind him has like the corpses of their dead friends just... and. Like the like the laughter just dies. Anyway, it's a great show. Uh, that, and that being said, Ilya, it's time to pay the bills. <laughs> oh yes, the, thank you for that segue. Boy, um, it is time to pay the bills. We have to thank our wonderful show sponsor, Aperture. So, uh, what product did you use to look at vomit this time? Oh God. <laughs> so, so for any of you who uh, did not hear the last episode with James Laxton, it's worth. Going back and just listening listen to, to the ad. You, you could just listen to the ad where uh, I potentially. I mean, James Laxton is awesome. I, you should definitely listen to James Laxton. But my God, I was laughing the whole way home after uh, we recorded that. Uh, I think mercifully, uh, our editor did a good job of not overbearing anyone with what could have been, uh, <laughs> you know, the most uh, career ending uh, advertisement sponsor read sort of thing that we we've ever done here. But uh, pleased to say that we didn't get any angry emails or phone calls. So uh, I think I think it's okay. We're just kind of doing our, they have, they our, have a, our they approximation have of, of Pod Save America, where we were riffing on it, and you were telling an actual anecdote from and your it, real life. It was a true, true true story. Where an aperture light came happened to come in handy, but it didn't have anything to do with filmmaking. Hundred percent true story. So anyway. we have to give a, a shout out to Aperture's presence in the world of social media. They they have a very good website. They also have a very good Facebook group. But the the president of uh, Aperture North America, Ted Sim, he also does this uh, very cool podcast of his own and YouTube channel called Indie Mogul. And if you Google that or look at it on uh, YouTube, you'll see that there is over a million people who uh, subscribe to that. Uh, And the current episode, this is going to seem a little self-serving, the current episode of the Indie Mogul podcast and YouTube video features yours truly. Hey, that's awesome. Yep. they, They had me on. It was very nice and uh, they did a great job I'm very very happy with it so you can hear me if you can't get enough of me there's an hour and five minute uh, interview on their podcast which is on so Apple how did, podcast how did their setup compared to our setup you know uh, their setup's pretty good you know I think I think we have an edge but there's there's is pretty good All right, yeah cool. yeah so so don't 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 feel too nervous if you're want to be measuring microphones here uh, we, we, our <laughs> microphones are slightly slightly larger our than condensers theirs. condense just fine <laughs> Anyway, so, uh, yeah, Aperture Online as a, a company, as a brand, as a uh, media powerhouse, worth investigating, worth looking into them. They come up with all kinds of cool content. They are doing similar stuff to what we are doing, and uh, you might enjoy it very much. Complimentary stuff. Like, yeah, not, co- they're, not, they're not a competitor. No, not at all. They, in fact, uh, some of the same people who have been on our podcast, like Dan Neese and uh, Larry Fong, have been on their podcast, which oh. is cool. Oh, I, gotta, did, I wonder if Larry said it and talked any shit about us. No, he didn't. He didn't talk any shit. Uh, so yeah, that that would that would have that would have made Dan it. Would. Yeah, I was gonna say like uh, that that would make it awkward for when we have him back next time. He's Super gonna be awkward. Like, he's gonna be like, "Hey Ben, <laughs> hmm, hey. yeah." Hey, suddenly I'm not that interested in your magic tricks. <laughs> oh, <laughs> sorry. I, uh, Larry Fong is an amazing magician. Anyway. <laughs> And now, short ends. Ben, I think it's short end time. Do you got a, a short end for us? I do have a short end, and it's something that I stole from you off of Facebook. You thief. It's awesome. Everybody can go check this out. It's an article on Dig. Who knew Dig was still a thing? They're still a thing. So in 1895, 
the Lumiere brothers who were, uh, you know, kind of pioneers in, in film. I don't, it wasn't even cinematography. It was every, like their camera, if I'm not mistaken, their camera was also a tank that you would process the film inside it. No, I don't think that's true. I think what it was is their camera was also turned into a projector. So you still had to take it out. You still had to process it. Then you had to put it back in and then you would. Uh, I knew that the camera did more than one thing. It wasn't just a camera, but anyway, they, they kind of started their career by making what would sort of be considered, uh, I would say stock footage. Stock, <laughs> stock footage. Okay, that, but, at that's the t- right. but at the time, no one had ever seen anything like yeah. that. So it wasn't just stock footage. It was the most amazing thing that people had ever seen. So, and everyone who's been to film I mean, school. We're talking the 1800s. 1800s this is yeah. pre-1900s. It's super new. The cinematograph and all of the all of the cool technology that was just coming into existence. And they made a film, which I'm going to butcher the French, uh, but it's Arrival of a Train at La Quata. Mm. Quatat. I don't speak French. So uh, if, if you Google Lumiere Brothers arrival of a train, what I was told in film school is that uh, when this thing would play at like carnival sideshows, basically, people would jump out of the way because the train was barreling at them and they were going to die. And it was, uh, you know, in a probably hand cranked Lumiere camera, black and white, super old. You're, you're looking at me. You're going to correct me. No, I was stuff. just going to say, I, I've heard that that's been somewhat debunked, that I think there was a patron or maybe two who had a little panic thing who might have already been drinking or it might have been some stuff. But most people were just amazed by it, but did not experience the like abject terror that has become the, the story, which then caused, of course, more people to want to go see this amazing thing that caused people to believe it was real and run screaming. Side note, I've also heard that uh, when the War of the Worlds radio show played, uh, not very many people freaked out. Hardly anyone bought yeah. it. Anyway, um, so, so so who knows? Regardless, yeah. th- this is still kind of a noteworthy moment in in filmmaking because it was able to bring one incident from the world around the world, and people could see uh, you know the excitement of a train arriving in someplace in France, right? So what you pointed me to was a YouTuber named Dennis, or maybe Denny Shariev, took this footage, stabilized it. Upresed it to 4K, and he used some kind of, they say, neural network? I don't even know. Yes, it's artificial intelligence that is. They're uh, using some kind of AI to kind of fill it in. Uh, Upresed it to 4K and 60 frames per second, which ordinarily I'm a very anti-60 frames per second kind of person. But in this particular instance, I think it's awesome because it feels like you're there. And uh, even added sound effects of the train coming. Oh, I, I left it. I, di- I didn't ever uh, unmute it, so I didn't get to, to see that. But yeah, yeah, def- it definitely has the spontaneity of something you might e- expect from, um, you know, the evening news or report, except you're seeing 1896 France. And and what's crazy about it is that the way he's presenting it, with the exception of it being in black and white, it, f- it and, and everyone's dressed all funky um, because it's 1895, is it, is it looks very, very modern. And I, I know this is, kind of a goofy way to put it but it's like you're just seeing people walk around and be like people like people you know right now like if you've ever been on a train platform or a subway platform waiting for a train the behavior is identical and uh this uprising of it kind of sort of does what the lumiere brothers did back in their time but across you know, over a century now kind of gives us a sense of what it would be like if those people still existed, you know, and, you know, it's, it's hard to look at that and not be like, you know, not only are all these people dead, their grandchildren are dead of old age. Like n- no one from this is, is still around. Their great grandchildren have <laughs> passed on. Sorry it's to true. Say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it reminded me a little bit of a documentary Peter Jackson made called They Shall Not Grow Old, which mm. if you haven't seen it, I think mm. is also definitely worth talking about because what Peter Jackson did uh, was they got all these great old World War One not new well this documentary footage of World War One right and they're shooting them on hand crank cameras the speed is variable the you know exposure and everything is goofy and they figured out they like went through and I think they just kind of hand had to do it to eye to say like okay we're going to speed it up this much we're going to slow it down that much whatever till it looked normal to try to get it even yeah then they had like a team of lip readers come in and read the lips of all the people and then they wow. brought in actors and had actors perform the roles of what people what people were what saying they thought they were saying yeah and then they colorized it Ooh. And the result uh, of of that documentary, I don't think it fully feels like a brand. It doesn't look like brand new footage from World War One, which is, I think, how it was sort of pitched to me when I first heard about it. But it it takes old World War One footage that looks, you know, kind of moth eaten and dusty and makes it feel like 
oh, I know people who look like that, or you know, I know people who look like that before they lost all their teeth. Just, just imagine now that they may run that through a AI system, and yeah. uh, it'll be 4K before you know it, and 60 frames per second. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and I I wonder if that wouldn't, to a degree, like you know, make it even feel more like present and 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 right here and now. And it's interesting to think too, because you know, in 500 years time, I, I obsess about stuff like this, but in 500 years time, assuming our, you know, an electromagnetic pulse doesn't wipe out the entire record of YouTube, mm. people will be able to look at us and say, this is how they talked. This is how they lived. This is, this is how they interacted. With we each already other. do that with the era of MC Hammer. We, we already do this. It's like you go back now and you can you can look and go, that's what life was like back in the 80s, kids. It's true. Yeah. It's, it's very true. But uh, anyway, it started being just about the arrival of the train. But but honestly, it's, it's sort of like this interesting kind of uh, anthropological study that you can now do on old film because film's now been around for more than 100 years. And it's like a minute long. We'll put a link in the show notes, but it's totally worth taking a look at this. This is, this is a fun thing to see, and it's one of the first sort of examples of the stuff I was talking about from the uh, the ASC Tech Committee many, many months ago, where they, we first started seeing up and archival footage being turned into modern 4K yeah, so, stuff. And I yeah. think we're going to just see more and more of that kind of stuff because oh, there's, there's yeah. so much of that floating around. It'd be interesting to see somebody take like an old... Like Thomas Edison, you know, like one of the movies that they made that were in the um, in the Penny Arcade kind of thing, and completely like uh, recently they found the uh, he had done a production of Frankenstein mm. in, in the early 1900s, and it was thought to be lost for years. And within the last 10 or 15 years, somebody they found a print of it. Oh wow! And nice. you can find it online. And uh, it would be interesting to say like, okay, we're going to go through and we're going to clean up, we're going to clean that up completely and make it look as clean as possible, or like a Georges Melier kind of film. I'd love something like Fritz Lang's Metropolis. I think that you could you could make a, a, a really great case for those you know visual effects from that from the from that era. Absolutely. And the the trick is always like how to honor what it was. Because, you know, like, yeah, you could go in and add a giant CGI robot, but like Fritz, Fritz Long had, you know, costumes and, and design and forced perspective and the tricks that he had. And you want to honor that. No, you, you not everything will um, subject itself very well to this treatment. But I think certain things that already are maybe fairly rough around the edges, like I'm thinking like uh, Eric von Stroheim's Greed or something like that, which oh, yeah, is already yeah. it's, a, it's a tough like even some of the early Hitchcock movies. Like there isn't a really great print or version available of, of many of them. But yeah. now you'd have the ability to kind of when you're talking about restoration, you're talking about restoration that no human did. We're talking about restoration that a computer interpolates, but the job that it does is so freaking good that it, it is almost like that science fiction of when you'd watch a, you know, a movie and they say, oh, enhance that. And then something <laughs> happens and it's enhanced. And that's sort of the world we're, we're entering right now, which is something we've never been able to do, at least commercially or publicly before. Interesting. So uh, my short end uh, this week is also about something old becoming something new. In fact, it's something from the end of the last millennia. Uh, it's a little movie. You've probably seen it called The Matrix. So The never Matrix. Heard of it. Ne- never heard of it. It came out in 1999. Keanu Reeves. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was directed by the Wachowskis. Well, uh, talking about getting the band back together, everything that's old is new again. Matrix 4 will be coming out. It has been, uh, it's going forward. And so for all of you who thought there was a lot of unanswered questions with the Matrix, uh, here, here's, or maybe there's just some more questions that need to be, to be asked, uh, it's coming back around. And um, I'm not exactly sure what they're going to do, but uh, they're my big casting question, announcements. My so. big question, Bill Pope or no Bill, Bill Pope? Uh, you know what? I don't know the answer to that. I, I'm not sure that if IMDB says either. Let's uh, let's take a look, see if Bill Pope has been attached. Come on, Bill Pope. You can do it, Bill Pope. Says cinematographer John Toll. Well, it's not exactly trading down there, but... No, John Toll worked with the Warshawskis on uh, Sense8, so yeah. they already have a good familiarity. I was actually involved with the, the earliest camera tests for, for that. So. Oh, sweet. So it's great, it's great to see that they're working together again, and he makes incredible images. So no Bill Pope, but uh, John Toll is not exactly uh, chopped yeah. liver. No, so. no, no, no. That's an awesome, an awesome call. Yeah, I mean, I will remain cautiously optimistic about a new matrix movie but i will also say out loud i was not a fan of matrix two matrices two or three no i think there's a lot of people who are right there with you but i think in some ways this kind of i don't know did you see terminator dark fate i did not because that only played in theaters and that was not one. that wasn't one of your one of your movies but okay so dark fate they basically make it seem like all the movies 
that they made in the Terminator franchise after Terminator 2 did not exist. Well, it, they did the same a, thing with Halloween. Uh, oh, the, really? The new Halloween that came out last year basically is a direct sequel to the first Halloween movie. And when you consider that there have been, uh, I think, six Halloween movies. In between. Since then, <laughs> yeah. including another Halloween 2. And, uh, th- and then there were several in that series. And then Rob Zombie made two Halloween movies. Oh, wow. Uh, one was sort of a remake of the original and then a sequel to his remake and then and then uh, the rights reverted to somebody else. And so the one that they made was a direct sequel to Hallow- to the original John Carpenter Halloween. Oh, wow. And I was like, that's neat, but it's, are you going to refund me all those other movies that I went out and saw? Because you're basically nullifying them within the continuity of your, of your story? Because like... You know, I'm not saying that the Matrix Four will do that. It says the plot is currently unknown on IMDb. Mm-hmm. It doesn't give anything away, but I kind of get the feeling that if they're going back to it now, it's not just you know, it's not just about money. It's not just a grab for like, ooh, how can we cash in on this? Isn't it though? I mean, well, like the Wachowskis kind of cashed in their their feature directing careers with uh, Jupiter Ascending. Yeah, you know what though? I'm they're going they're going back to it. I I clearly don't think they need the money, and they got the whole cast back together. They got you know uh, Keanu Reeves, they got uh, Carrie Ann Moss, and actually interesting though, I do see here on the list that Neil Patrick Harris is in the cast. So that okay, that actually really makes this a much more attractive thing already because Neil Patrick Harris is Jada Pinkett Smith. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, like, I'm not saying I'll go wherever Neil Patrick Harris goes, but he makes really interesting choices when it comes to movies. I agree. I I agree. Like Gone Girl or Harold and Kumar go to White Castle. You're like, why is Neil Patrick Harris in this? And then it's like, whoa, Neil Patrick Harris is kind of awesome. Uh, And actually someone from the TV series iZombie named Andrew Caldwell has also just signed on. So it's like, yeah, it's it's an interesting. They bring back, bring back the fish, Fishburn. I don't see him listed. So, oh. but I, 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 but you know, maybe it's just not announced yet. Maybe it's not there. That's so. true. They could be hiding it. Bring back Joey Pants. You know, I, I hope so, but I didn't see him in the list either. I mean, I he wasn't in, in Matrix two or three, so I, I doubt it. I just, I just love the guy. I, I love him too. Joey Pants can do no wrong. I yeah. mean, it's like uh, I love him in The Sopranos. I love him in everything. So, yeah. uh, really fun actor. So, so anyway, Ben, I think that that just about does it. So, uh, I mean, really, for as far as my short end with Matrix Four, I guess you know, I, it's just interesting to me that this is coming back around again. Where I thought we had never, we would never see another Matrix thing ever, well, and now here it is. Well, what's weird to me, and I think this is just part of the nature of aging, is like seeing the things that you watched as a kid get remade and then remade again, and um, or or rebooted or you know restarted one way or the other. And you know, we've obviously the last few years, Disney has been remaking cartoons from my childhood in you know in in live action or photo real ways. You know, Lion King is obviously not live action; it's all CGI, but it's done in a photo real way, so it looks like we have creepy talking lions, for instance. <laughs> yes, we, we that, that's not going. Away. Way, we're gonna get a lot more of that in the future yeah well i mean well the the mulan movies coming out that's not really from my childhood but you know they did beauty and the beast and 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 aladdin and uh but it's just interesting to see stuff that i was already a fan of getting getting the old reboot treatment and in the case of like halloween uh, i would say i've seen it get rebooted like two hard reboots you know what actually doesn't need a reboot but they could probably do even easier today and it's not like it needs a sequel but if George Miller was to go back and do another Babe movie, uh, I'm there. Anything that he would do. Honestly, would anything babe. George Miller does. Anything. It's true. Anything George Miller does. It's George, true. But George Miller. He honestly, can do no wrong also. He, he really like, is one of those guys who's just like. He can do any genre. He can do I mean, anything. He brought back Mad Max. And I think it's interesting that we don't have another Mad Max movie that I know of uh, cooking at the moment. Not uh, that I'm aware of. But, but Fury Road to me is uh, on par with any of his other Mad Max movies. Yeah, incredible. So, uh, okay. Well, hey, Ben, uh, where can people find you? Go to benrockonline.com. That's probably the best place. And you can find all my social medias there. If you're adventurous, you can just go straight to Twitter or Facebook or uh, LinkedIn. Several people have added me on Facebook. If you do that, just like send me a message and say, hey, I'm not a bot. I'm an actual human being and I'll probably accept your thing. And then you can see updates about my kid and my dog, which I don't know why you care, but we're there. It's all good. You can find me uh, at Hot Red Cameras. I'm here Monday through Friday. But although lately I've had a few people find me from the podcast on LinkedIn, which yeah. who, who, who knew? Like LinkedIn uh, lately has LinkedIn been a thing. is LinkedIn is, is actually, I think, very underrated. I think people outside of the entertainment business use LinkedIn a lot. 
and people in the entertainment business don't use it as much, but I'm sometimes shocked at how many people I know are on there. I had 48 requests in the last 30 days or something they told me from people and several of them for the podcast. Now, granted, some people wanted to sell our podcast a service of some sort, which was like uh, generally people in the third world saying, we can make your show really popular, pay us money. Uh And I said, well, no, (laughs) no, I I think actually we're doing a pretty good job. Super gross. I know. Like like just inflating your numbers or they've got like. like, And like they're going to like have a click farm or something like uh, like send a bunch of people. So I, I, I told them that no way. I said, why don't you listen to our podcast does it sound like the type of thing that you know anyway they 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 their english was terrible and they really just wanted money so but mm. regardless yeah linkedin i've had a few people have found us from uh, linkedin lately which is kind of yeah. cool no i'm on there too man look me up so who do we need to thank today uh let's thank Kay Zalatracci. Yeah, Kay Zalatracci, who provided all the music that you've just heard, and uh, he can be found at musicbykays.com. Please go there and literally say anything to him. Just tell him that you heard his stuff on the Cinematography Podcast, and then whatever you say after that, it's up to you. Yeah, uh, let's thank uh, our editor, Ben Katz. Ben Katz, who keeps us from sounding like the complete drooling idiots that we are. Wow, you didn't have to bring up the drooling. Yeah, so, well, I'll, I'll bring up, as soon as we there's hit a cop, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll bring out the Swiffer. <laughs> and, of course, uh, Alana Cody, who we wouldn't be here without her. Oh, my God. Alana, Alana has uh, increased our output uh, shockingly over the last year and turned this into a real enterprise. Yeah, and uh, shows no sign of slowing down now. So. Yes, this no longer feels like my weird hobby. This feels like this thing we just do all the time. So uh, go to Cam Noir, go to Hot Red Cameras, go to Aperture, visit our, our wonderful sponsor. And Please just come here and show up and ask Ilya for a T-shirt. Uh, you will get a hot red camera shirt or a hat and uh, a variety of sizes that we have left, which I think is between about small and extra large. Yeah, come here, yeah. pretend to browse, get a T-shirt. <laughs> get- you have to specifically say you're here from, you know, because you heard me say you get a shirt if you come to the shop. And please, please, it really makes a big difference. Like and su- uh, subscribe and like. If you tell a couple of friends, we won't complain, but just, just a, a like or a good, a, a positive comment on iTunes will take you literally seconds. You could like us on Facebook. You could follow us on Instagram. I think we're closing in on like 450 now on Instagram. So it's like things are happening. We're really moving and shaking. So, <laughs> so that is it. And we will see you next week at the Cinematography Podcast. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.